The movement to a, to a market-based exchange rate, I think, is the, the number one element, right? You can't have exports growing with an overvalued exchange rate. You can't, right? No country has ever grown their export sector with an overvalued exchange rate. It doesn't mean you need to artificially keep it undervalued, right? But it is a necessary condition for it not to be overvalued. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. We've touched upon um, Pakistan's economic issues and macroeconomic crises that have been quite the norm um, for as far as we can look back. Regular occurrences where the country goes back to the IMF, needs loans from China, Saudi Arabia, etc. Um, and at the heart of this issue is not the fact that Pakistan borrows a lot of external debt, that is a problem. But the major issue has been that Pakistan has not found a way to earn the foreign reserves and dollar flows that can help it pay back those uh, debts that it has taken on. And at the core is the problem that Pakistan's exports have not grown in a way that can allow it to earn the dollars to then uh, pay back these loans and trade more with the rest of the world and grow its economy. So to understand why that has been the case and why Pakistan's exports in fact have peaked at about $25 billion in 2011-12, declined since then um, and as a percent of GDP and as a percentage of per capita exports, um, Pakistan is a laggard. So we have with us Dr. Gonzalo Varela. He's a senior economist in the macroeconomics trade and investment uh, global practice of the World Bank. He's currently based in Islamabad where he leads the trade program. And previously he worked at the World Bank's global trade unit in Washington, DC in the Ministry of Industries of Uruguay and in the private sector. So he has a lot of deep experience in understanding not only Pakistan's export issues, but globally what works and what doesn't work. He's also taught at the University of Sussex, the University of Pisa, and the University of Trento. Um, and primarily his work focuses on how trade and investment policy affect firms' performance. And he's been published in peer-reviewed journals, books, and reports. Um, finally, Dr. Varela has a PhD in economics from the University of Sussex. So, uh, Gonzalo, welcome to Pakistanomy and thank you so much for taking out the time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Uze, for, for having me. It's a pleasure for me to be here. So, I, I, yeah, I want to jump into this first issue that I sort of teased in the beginning, which is that Pakistan's export base hasn't grown really in the last decade, two decades. Uh, and in fact, it's been always a laggard in terms of exports. So, Based on your research and expertise, why has that been the case? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Pakistan's exports are, are low and they're stagnant, right? So if, if you think about per capita, per capita terms, right? So Pakistan exports $130 per capita. Uh, if you rank countries from the ones that export the least in terms of per capita levels to the ones that export the most, what you see is that Pakistan is in the bottom 10% of the ones that export the least. You can take another metric. You can take any metric you want. Take, for example, the global market share of Pakistan. That is how much of what the world buys in terms of goods and services is actually sold by Pakistani firms. And compare what was happening in 2005 with what is happening now. 2005, Pakistani firms were exporting about $1.6 out of every $1,000 that were bought worldwide. Today, they are exporting $1.2. Mm. 
mm. of every 1,000. So the market share fell. Think about Bangladesh that in 2005 was exporting about 50 cents of a dollar of every $1,000 bought internationally. And today is almost selling $2 out of every 1,000 sold wow. internationally. So there is a, a, a big issue with export growth in Pakistan, but it's not just about the value of exports that is stagnating in Pakistan. So you can, you can take two other dimensions, diversification and quality of Pakistani exports, right? And, and think big picture and take, again, let's compare with a different country, this is Vietnam. So think Pakistan and think Vietnam and go back to 2005 and look at the export bundle of Pakistan and that of Vietnam, very similar. A lot of the exports, about 80 to 90% of the exports were explained by textiles, apparel and commodities. Now, fast forward to 2019, 2020, what you see is that Vietnam still exports commodities, still exports textiles and apparel, but it added, it added electronics, it added smartphones, it added TVs, computers, etc. Those electronics now account for about three quarters of Vietnam's exports. If you look at Pakistan's export bundle today, it resembles very much so what was in 2005, textiles, apparel, commodities. That is about 80% of exports of Pakistan today. And if you want to zoom in a little bit more, right, go a little bit more into detail, one of the things that you see is that comparing 2009 and 2019, Pakistan's exporters introduced 146 new product varieties, but they discontinued 437 product varieties. So all in all today, Pakistani exporters export less varieties than they did 10 years ago. Now you ask me why this is happening. This is the more, the more interesting part of it, right? And I would say the answer here is productivity. So Paul Krugman once said that productivity is not everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. Well, that also holds for explaining exports, right? Productivity is almost everything when it comes to export performance. So think about this, think that for a firm to be able to export, what a firm needs to, to be able to do is to reach a certain productivity threshold. Let's call it a bar, right? So if your productivity is above that bar, you export. If the, your productivity is below that bar, you're not competitive enough, you don't export, right? Now, if your productivity grows, then it's easier for you to jump that bar. But if your productivity doesn't and the rest of the world's productivity grows, then that bar becomes relatively higher and higher and higher for you, right? More difficult to jump. So recently with Stefania Lobo from University of Reading, we looked into productivity dynamics of publicly listed firms in Pakistan. So these are the 500 largest firms in Pakistan that are listed in the Pakistan Stock Exchange. So we looked at what was happening with their total factor productivity. And what we saw is that total factor productivity of these firms on average barely increased over the period. So this means that for these firms, that bar was getting higher and higher and higher. Now, what can you do to lower that bar to a certain extent so that you can get more firms jumping into that export status that is so important? Now, I would say there are, there are many things, but the most important things that I would say you can do have to do with three things. They have to do with what happens with exchange rate, right? And then it comes to the role that exchange rate depreciations may have to boost your competitiveness. Has to do with how much foreign direct investment you can attract. And they have to do with your level of import duties. And let me go 
a little bit into detail in each of these three things. So let me start with exchange rate depreciations. So depreciation of exchange rate makes your exports more competitive, right? Why is that? Because basically what a depreciation does is it shrinks your domestic costs when you express them in dollars, right? Mm. Uh, my, my colleague, Caroline Freund, that is the, the director of uh, trade in the World Bank in Washington, DC, uh, and, and, and a well-published researcher looked at the role that cross countries, large depreciations have in explaining export surges, right? And one of the phrases she uses that I find very, very uh, interesting is that a little bit, a large depreciation is a little bit like, like a big opening sale, right? So it helps you lower that productivity threshold you have to jump to become an exporter, right? So large depreciations mean you're suddenly cheaper and it's easier for you to pay the fixed costs that it takes to find new clients abroad. So you find these new clients and then once you get the clients and you establish the export relationship, even if the exchange rate appreciates gradually over time, you won't lose that client, right? You're, you stick to them. Now, is this mechanism at play in Pakistan? So we know that the exchange rate in Pakistan was until recently uh, largely appreciated. There are several studies that show an overvaluation of the real exchange rate. That is what, what matters actually to, to explain export competitiveness. And so th then they moved to a market-based exchange rate regime more recently. And then the nominal exchange rate uh, depreciated substantially and moved from about 100 to the, the parity that we have now at about 160 uh, rupees per dollar. So what we did was uh, in another paper with, with some colleagues is we looked at how Pakistani experts responded to episodes of appreciations and of depreciations of exchange rate to see a little bit if, if that large depreciation acts as a grand opening sale as, as Caroline Freund says for the case of Pakistan. And one of the things that we see here that is quite interesting is that actually Pakistani exports are a little bit like what we call slow rockets and fast feathers. Why? Because when the exchange rate appreciates, Pakistani exports are fast to foil. But when the exchange rate depreciates, Pakistani exports are very sluggish to grow. And so we wanted to understand a little bit better why that was the case. And so we looked at the, at the level of the product and we found two interesting things. That is basically, when you're exporting products that are homogenous out of Pakistan, Think about rice, right? So rice is sold in organized markets and there are reference prices, yeah? So depreciations made, made it easier for rice exporters to, to export. And they took advantage of that opportunity and increased their shipments quite rapidly. Now, if you're exporting differentiated products, then the depreciation, yes, makes you more competitive, but you need to go out and find the lost export relationship, rebuild that lost export relationship. And that it was very difficult for firms to do. And so this is where we find that for differentiated products, exports don't grow with depreciations, but with homogenous they do, right? So Why? A, a quick question over here, which is it's fascinating, right? Because the traditional J-curve effect that we learn in Economics 101 seems like hold does not hold true and i've read other research coming out of pakistan as well that says the same that export elasticity is not that great when it comes to depreciation 
Um, could it also be a factor that when you have such a substantial depreciation, access to credit and other things actually act as barriers for Pakistani firms because you have to travel abroad and make that relationship? Let's say you have to fly to Europe or the United States, and all of a sudden, if your currency is 30% more ex uh, expense or cheaper, the dollar is 30% more expensive, let's say, you actually might think, okay, wait a minute, do can I actually do this do you think that's also at play here or is it something else that's going on well there, there are there are two things two things there in what you mentioned right so one is access to credit and the other one is your structure costs so access to credit definitely matters and that was actually the second finding that we had in, in that paper right so those sectors that had more access to credit were those sectors that did much better hmm. with depreciations than those uh, that didn't have access to credit. So that was a, a separating factor and it makes sense and the channel works through that, that mechanism that you're mentioning. You, if, you're, if you're going to scale up because suddenly you're more competitive, you want to sell more, to scale up, you need more working capital and you need more machinery and equipment. Mm -hmm. And for that, most likely you will need credit unless you have retained earnings, right? So if firms were, were stretched in the return earnings, they're going to require credit. If that credit is not available, they're not going to be able to take on that opportunity. The other thing you're mentioning is something that is also known in the literature, that is, if your costs are mainly denominated in dollars, like for example, you were mentioning, okay, you have to travel to find new clients, right? And that travel is denominated in dollars because mm -hmm. airplane tickets are. So in that case, then yes, the exchange rate acts a little bit less. Right? So the more important inputs that you use or, or inputs that are denominated in dollars, then the less the effect of exchange rates on your export competitiveness. But what we identify here quite clearly on that differential effect between appreciations and depreciations is what explains that differential effect is the information costs that are higher for differentiated products and lower for homogeneous products and access to credit that enables you to uh, upscale, to increase your, your scale of production uh, relatively rapidly. So in a nutshell, I would say the mechanism linking exchange rates with exports in Pakistan is at play, but there are complementary factors that affect how large that relationship is. So exports are still elastic to relative prices. Of course, why wouldn't they be? There's, there's nothing so special about Pakistan in a way. But what matters is there are complementary factors that are reducing that effect that have to do with extent of information costs and uh, access to credit. So quickly, just you know, be, before I lose this thought, um, you said Pakistani firm, this total factor productivity has not grown right so the gap continues to get larger because the vietnam's bangladesh of the world actually have had total factor productivity growth from your perspective what is uh what are the sort of combination of factors that have led to this outcome in pakistan because obviously there is the labor challenge but then pakistanis would turn back and say yes even though our labor is not as literate or as well skilled because of lack of investments in education it is still a large labor pool size um, on the capital side, yes, there are issues in terms of access to credit investment machinery, but based on your research, like what is really the reason why even the largest firms in Pakistan with access to capital have been unable to grow their total factor productivity? Well, it, this is interesting because 
the one of the key area, one of the key findings that we have on when we try to explain that behavior of productivity is the extent to which the Pakistani economy has opened up to the world. So integration into the global marketplace is a key channel through which firms can increase their productivity for, for largely two reasons. One is because the more integrated you are, the more competition you face. And the more competition you face, the more of a need you have to increase your efficiency if you're going to survive, hmm. right? So the more you keep your economy insulated from foreign competition, then the less scope you have for tapping into this uh, competition-induced efficiency gains. So that's one part, that, and, and we find it quite clearly in the, in, the, in, the, in the data. The other element that integration to the global marketplace does is it exposes you to more new technologies, more quality inputs, and that creates sort of a, a, a knowledge transfer, right? So you learn by being integrated into the world economy. So that learning channel is also in a way stunted by policies that uh, prevent full integration, both in terms of trade, but also in terms of investment of the Pakistan economy with the rest. And, and this actually takes me to the, to the second element that I think that is crucial in explaining uh, the, the, the poor performance of exports uh, in Pakistan in the, in the last two decades. And that has to do with FDI. If you look internationally at countries that have done well in uh, becoming export powerhouses, the key element that you have is that their increasing exports came hand in hand with an increase in FDI inflows, right? So you can think of Vietnam with Samsung, you can think of Costa Rica with Microsoft, or you can think of Poland with Opel, right? You can think of any case of countries that grew through exporting, they did so because they also opened to foreign direct investment that came, set shop there and started exporting, used that the country as a platform for exporting. So this is not yet happening in Pakistan. There are a number of reasons for that. One has to do with, with security concerns that at some point uh, there were, they, they, they were quite, quite valid uh, and that reduced the scope for inflows of FDI but it also has to do with a complex business environment that is at play that makes it difficult for multinationals to, to want to come and, uh, and invest in Pakistan. And a particular thing that we also see that is quite strong in determining that productivity growth that is needed to, to boost exports is FDI coming into upstream sectors. So into sectors that produce, for example, enabling services. So there is strong evidence out there, many countries of the world, showing how FDI in upstream sectors helps productivity of downstream firms. So this is interesting because you get FDI, right? And the ones that end up gaining in terms of productivity are gaining are domestic firms, right? Mm. So domestic firms gain because they have access to better services that are provided by these multinational companies. We so also by, by upstream, by upstream uh, sorry to interrupt, but you mean like, let's say I am a country that exports a lot of farm shrimp and I have domestic firms doing shrimp farming, if I attract FDI into a shrimp packaging business that can then make the Super Bowl, large Super Bowl type shrimp packaging for me, that investment in the upstream sector, because it's value added, will actually help my shrimp farmers because all of a sudden their productivity of shrimp per, you know, per 
acre per kilo will grow. And that is what you're referring to, correct? If I understand it correctly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yes. Yes. And we also find in the data for Pakistan, right? So those sectors that saw their uh, relevant upstream sectors. So in your case of uh, shrimp farming, you know, the more investment in, in feedstock for shrimp. Those are sectors that gain more in terms of their productivity because of that FDI coming into those sectors uh, upstream. But again, the, in general, FDI in Pakistan has remained at, on average about one percentage point of, of GDP that by international comparisons is, is, is really low. So there's, there's, there's something to improve there. And let me move to a third element uh, that is blocking uh, export growth and, and that if, if changed, if reformed properly, it could dramatically lower the bar so that more Pakistani firms can actually become exporters. And this is import duties. Import duties. You think about import duties and you say, hang on, but import duties are actually imposed on imports, right? So what do they have to do with, with exports? Well, import duties are implicitly an export tax. And I'll tell you why. I'm, I'm, before I tell you why, I'm going to tell you something. Actually, this is something that in the 1920s, an economist called Ava Lerner uh, actually showed, right? that there's a symmetry between import duties and export duties. So imposing an import tax is equivalent to importing, impo imposing an export tax. Let me give you an example to, to explain the intuition of this. In Pakistan, import duties for bicycles, 52%. What does this mean in practice? Well, this means in practice that if a standard bicycle is sold internationally by, let's say, $100, right? With an import duty of 52% in Pakistan, that means that a bike producer in Pakistan can sell this bike domestically by up to $152 without being outpriced by import competition because foreign competitors will need to pay the tariff of 52. Yeah. They have cost of production of 100, so they can only sell at 152. So in a way, the the tariff policy maker in Pakistan is giving 52 extra dollar to the bike producer so that the bike producer sells the bike in the domestic market. Because if the bike producer was to sell internationally, it will get 100, not 152. So in a way, the tariff policy maker is without perhaps noticing, creating an anti-export bias by imposing import duties. It is encouraging firms to sell domestically and not exporting. And this is why what you see over the last 15 years is that the economy is becoming less and less and less export-oriented. The, the share of exports on GDP fell from about 15% in 2005 to about 10% in 2020, right? And this is because there is an anti-bias, anti-export bias in tariff policy that is inducing firms to sell domestically. So the intention of these high tariffs on final goods is to substitute inputs, right? Is to, to encourage firms to buy cheap intermediate inputs from abroad because the tariffs on intermediate inputs are relatively low and sell domestically shielded by the high tariff on the final good. But the consequence, rather than substituting inputs, the consequence is to discourage exports. So I would say that these are the three key elements that explain the low productivity, 
that in turn explains the low export performance. An exchange rate that was relatively appreciated for a long time, lack of FDI and high import duty. And I would just say like the import duty has the other function too, right? Which is it by shielding the domestic firm from import competition, you are also creating a disincentive to have cost savings and investments in improving productivity that if I am a bi that bicycle producer in Pakistan and I have that $52 cushion, which is 52% in this example, um, and my costs are at 110, I don't have an incentive to bring my costs down to 90, 80, 75 because I'm shielded by the government. And so not only is the country losing in terms of export earnings, it's losing in terms of productivity growth in the long term. And it is also losing consumer welfare. Um, so this argument, and I was thinking, I would say the better example in this case is Pakistan's auto sector, which has been shielded for decades and decades and has no real incentive to either grow productivity or even innovate. Um, forget about exporting, even the consumer is like paying through the nose for cars that are in many ways, technologically way behind even something produced in, in India, for example, which is next door. And that brings me to my second question for you, which was, you know, when I look at as a non-trade expert, I look at regions that have done the most um, in terms of growing their exports and done supremely well in terms of then economic upliftment um, are regions that are integrated. So you look at ASEAN, you look at the European Union, you look at the Latin American countries and even NAFTA and USMCA subsequently. Um, what is the role of geographic in integration in terms of, you know, promoting this type of export growth and these export industries interlinked globally? And then how does that factor into the Pakistani example? And the example that's coming to my mind right now is that, you know, we've had reports over the last two weeks saying Pakistan won't have a great cotton crop. Meanwhile, next door in India, there's going to be a bumper cotton crop. Pakistan, as you said, 80% of its exports are textile focused um, in, in nature. And so one would think that bring in the bumper crop from next door, or ship it through, uh, you know, through, through Amritsar and Lahore, and boom, there you go. You have the export coming in cheaply, uh, the cotton Im import coming in cheaply. So just help the listener understand the role of geographic uh, integration in terms of promoting overall export industries around the world. This is, this is a very good question. Let me, let me take one step back to, to answer it, right? And, and think about how, how is it that nowadays trade is, is taking place. So about three quarters of trade, global trade, today happens through what is called global value chains, right? So what are these global value chains? So global value chains basically imply the international fragmentation of a production process, right? International fragmentation of production process according to comparative advantage or re relative costs, right? The paradigmatic example of this is the smartphone, right? So the smartphone is not designed and produced all the way in one place. The smartphone is designed somewhere in the world. Parts and components of this smartphone are produced by firms across about a hundred different countries. And these parts and components all get shipped somewhere else where they get assembled. And then from there, they get sold to the world, right? So you, you break down the production process in a way that you make it extremely cost competitive to produce that smartphone. And this story is not just about the smartphone. Anything or about three quarters of things get traded in this way. You can think about something so simple as Himalayan salt, 
right? Himalayan mm -hmm. salt, the one you're going to use to put on your steak uh, when you have dinner tonight, that one probably is produced through the platform of a global value chain in which you have someone is, is designing the product, someone that is getting the Himalayan salt probably from a salt mine in Punjab, and then uh, is packaged somewhere else and sold to the world. Yeah, on that note, I actually went to a friend's place a couple of weeks ago for a barbecue and she had Himalayan salt from Trader Joe's. I looked at the package on the back and it says product of Pakistan packaged in the United States. And initially it used to be, a lot of it used to be packaged in India, but things have changed. So now it's being packaged here in the United States, Not still not being packaged in Pakistan from what I saw. There you go. Now, this, this phenomenon of global value chains was uh, studied a lot by Richard Baldwin. Richard Baldwin from the Graduate Institute of Geneva is probably the leading researcher uh, on global value chains. And, and, and in, there is a great book by him that is called The Great Convergence. And in The Great Convergence, one of the things that he argues is that these global value chains are nothing like global. They are not really global. So they are called global value chains because it's a catchy name, but they're truly right, regional. Right, And so you have Factory America, and then you have leading firms in the United States and suppliers all over Canada, Mexico, Central America. Then you have Factory Europe, and you have leading firms from France and Germany, and you have suppliers all over Europe. And then you have Factory Asia, leading firms from Japan and China, and then you have suppliers from South Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this geographic advantage you're talking about is, is there, right? So these global value chains are really regional value chains. So being in, an, in a good geographical area is good. Given in a, in a geographical area in which there is a lot of trade makes things easier. And, and it's very similar to a, you know, a regular market, right? So if you go to a bazaar in Lahore or Karachi, you will see the big sort of bulk wholesaler of cotton and cloth. And next to them, you will have little tailors popping up because there is this one anchor who has all the materials and the orders coming in and around him or her, mostly his business, will be a, a, a cottage industry of sorts of smaller businesses that rely on this big anchor in the market, right? So it's very similar when you look at geographies. Exactly, exactly, that, that's true, that's true. That analogy is quite good, right? So, so that proximity, being in the bazaar or being in factory Asia or factory America or factory Europe matters. And it, it, it makes it easier for you to jump into a global value chain that is a, truly is a platform for in, internationalization of firms, particularly small firms. So proximity matters because of two things, right? It matters because the logistics are, are cheaper, right? They're closer. But it also matters because proximity also brings about many other sorts of affinities that make trade easier or less costly, right? You can think about common language, you can think about common culture, you can think about common legal systems that typically come with proximity. You can think about, you know, common tastes. So all of these things reduce trade costs, right? And so they, they, they make that regional advantage quite, uh, quite important. So if you don't trade with your region, then you have it more difficult. There's no doubt about that. Now, does this mean that this is an unsurmountable obstacle? Well, no, the answer is no. And I will give you one example, right? And the example is Chile. So Chile is a South American country in the Pacific coast, quite remote from everything and inserted in a region that is poorly integrated with the world. 
Its main neighbor, Argentina, to the east, is one of the least integrated countries in the world. Yet Chile is one of the most integrated countries in the world. Mm. How is that? What did they do? Right? Because they can't move. Countries can't move. Right? So what they did was they took a very aggressive stance in terms of negotiating agreements with the rest of the world. And Chile now has a vast number of free trade agreements that what they do basically is offset to us to some extent the costs that remoteness, right? The costs that that regional disadvantage imposes on Chilean firms, right? And then think about uh, these free trade agreements doing not only reducing tariffs, which is part of them, right? Part of the, the scope of the free trade agreement is to reduce tariffs with your trading partners. But actually what Chile does is it, it signs what they call, what are called deep trade agreements. And what these deep trade agreements do is they go beyond the tariff liberalization into, for example, mutual recognition of standards. So harmonization of standards, right? Treaties on intellectual property protection, on customs reforms, on investment integration and services integration. So by doing that, they substantially reduce the cost of trading for, for, for in this case, for Chilean firms, right? Which ends up offsetting, as I mentioned before, that uh, regional disadvantage that they face for being in an area that is not trading uh, much. So in a way, what they're doing is, remember that bar I was mentioning before in terms of productivity, is lowering the bar for firms so exporters from Chile can actually jump it uh, much easier. So is Pakistan doing the same? So is Pakistan also trying to sign free trade agreements to reduce its trade costs? Well, very slowly, right? Very slowly. So today, if you look at if you look at the, the Pakistan network of agreements, what you see is an FTA with China and an FTA with Sri Lanka, and then preferential trade agreements that are partial in nature with Iran and Malaysia, right? So advancing this agenda is crucial. And in a way, sometimes, because Pakistan is a least developed country and so faces some preferences under the generalized system of preferences, you say, well, why sign a free trade agreement if I get the low tariffs through the GSP? Thing is that free trade agreements do much more than tariffs. And you need to move into much more than tariffs, agreements and services on investment, on mutual recognition of standards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a, a, an, an agenda that needs to uh, move forward so that Pakistan can also increase their exports, also lower that bar uh, for exports to grow. And one more thing about this regional disadvantage, that is increasingly services are becoming more and more tradable, right? And when one thinks modern services, right? Think about software design, think about digital design, think about professional services in general, right? So these are digitally traded. Geographical disadvantage disappears virtually there, right? So if you trade these services digitally, it doesn't matter if you're in Pakistan, Australia, Chile, or the United States, right? So this is an area in which Pakistan is doing really well, and it could do much better. Now, what is the challenge here? The challenge here is connectivity, not the hard connectivity of ports, roads, and shipping lines frequencies, is the connectivity in terms of access to internet, for example, that facilitates that trade, right? And that still today is something that in Pakistan is restricted to first tier cities, I would say. 
So outside first year cities, connectivity is, is relatively poor and that makes it quite difficult uh, for firms to, to tap into the opportunity that, that, that services uh, have to offer to, to Pakistan. And I mean, even there, right, there is the anti-export bias in terms of the tariff structure, which is that your hardware for these things, laptops, smartphones, et cetera, are, have hired and higher duties on them. Even your cell phone connection, you pay through your nose for um, a, a 4G access because the tariff uh, or the customs or the ta- sales tax is high. Um, and again, that raises the cost barrier. But what I'm hearing from you in terms of geographical integration is that it is a something that is great to have if you can have it. But Pakistan is in a tough neighborhood. And, you know, for whatever reasons, if things aren't going to progress with east-west connectivity, um, it's not something that's not insurmountable. You can look at, I would, when you said Malaysia, I was thinking about if you move forward with the Malaysia, you almost very quickly then get into the RCEP zone because Malaysia is integrated with the rest of the countries in its region. And if you are competitive and able to trade with Malaysia, by extension, you can very quickly move into the other markets as well because there's some harmonization that's already taken place over there. Um, but that is, again, something you need to look at you know, today when, you, when people talk about factories relocating from China and there being a moment to capture some of that you know, shift into a country like Pakistan. You need to start moving on these things today so that the others who are also competing with you, you know, don't have a higher bar and don't have a easier path forward to to attract those investors coming in, which then goes to FDI and factor productivity. Speaking of all of that, when you look at Pakistan and look at potential in terms of diversifying the export basket, um, growing the number of products that are sold by Pakistani firms, where do you see opportunities in terms of you know, here are things that if the government or if the private sector and the government together were to prioritize, offer an opportunity for a country that frankly has been losing market share as a percentage of global trade? Well, one can think of these opportunities in, in two ways, right? So you can think of the opportunities in, in terms of, okay, which are the, the sectors that could face uh, larger opportunities coming moving forward? And then what are the things that need to be done so that these opportunities are tapped into, right? Mm-hmm. So if one thinks about sectors in which Pakistan has competitiveness and has the potential to upgrade it even further, let me, let me say there are probably three, uh, and I will, I will mention three that are quite different in nature, right? So the first one is the one I was mentioning before that is related to IT and IT-enabled services. So this is a star sector in Pakistan, right? It's knowledge-based, high productivity. It is dynamic, $2.5 billion of exports out of Pakistan in 2019 that are recorded. But actually there are many more exports that go unrecorded and come into the countries in the form of remittances for a number of factors that we, that we could discuss. It's also a sector that has been growing double-digit growth rates over the last 10 years. Right? And it's also a sector that is dynamic worldwide, right? So technology made digital trade of these services possible and COVID made it inevitable, right? So this is something that was pushed by COVID. This is something that was happening already that mm-hmm. this type of services with inter- were internationally traded. With COVID people realized that many services that before were provided in person 
don't need to be provided in person, can be provided remotely. And if they can be provided remotely, then why do you need to get them from your neighbor? Why can't you get them from, say, Pakistani supplier if you're in Uruguay, right? I'm thinking an absurd example I'm going to give you, but personal training service is very popular in the United States. People mm -hmm. pay a lot of money for personal trainers, right? If you can get personal trainer through Zoom, you're going to pay about a fifth of the price if you get a personal trainer from Pakistan instead of one from the US. You will have to adjust your the time difference, right? But yeah. that, that, is a, that is a new thing that I don't think it's, it, it, I don't think it's happening a lot. But you have other professional services that are already being traded uh, and where, where there are enormous opportunities for Pakistan, right? So here, what, what needs to be done, I would say two things. You, you mentioned one that is the, the anti-export bias and the import duties and intermediates, and I subscribe to that. But to me, one thing here is connectivity and skills. Clearly, there needs to be upgrading of that. And also international payment systems that work well so that exporters from Pakistan can get paid and can also pay suppliers abroad. And so the, 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 you need to be able, you need to allow the inflow, but also you need to allow the outflow. If you don't allow the outflow, say when you need to pay an international supplier, then nobody will want to bring the money. Mm -hmm. And this is behind some of the problems that Pakistan now has to bring all these funds, all these uh, proceeds from the exports of these services. A lot of them, a lot of these proceeds actually are parked somewhere else because Pakistani firms have trouble actually remitting money out when they want to contract services. Yeah, your, your uncle's, your, your, you as their trainer, your uncle sitting in Miami keeps the cash for you in a bank account and when they fly back, in a year, every winter or whatever, they'll bring some chunk of that back for you as cash because that's the easiest way for you to deal with that problem, right? That's essentially what happens in most cases. So foreign exchange regulations there need to make it easier for people to bring in their export proceeds without having to convert immediately into rupees and then having to convert back into dollars if you want to pay a supplier. Because there you lose from five to 10% already on the, on the differences in spread. So there are transaction costs that make it highly uncompetitive to do that right now. So that's one, one sector, IT and IT-enabled services. The other sector I would mention, and this may come as a surprise, is the sector of animal and vegetal pro vegetable products. You see a lot of increasing exports here, and these are sectors that have comparative advantage, and not only do they have comparative advantage, they also have the potential to incorporate much more knowledge into these products. And I'm going to give you two examples. One is rice, right? Basmati rice out of Pakistan sells at a uh, premium price. So if you, if you rank order the exporters of rice according to the price they fetch in international markets, Pakistan does pretty well in rice. It does pretty badly in many other sectors. In rice, it does pretty well. Investing more in branding, is something and, and, and the recent uh, efforts of the government of Pakistan to, to share the, the, the Basmati brand is something that, is, that may pay off. Uh, and in general, investing in branding uh, is something that is going to bring more uh, value to the product. And the other one is meat, uh, and particularly halal meat. The opportunities are there and investments are needed in two areas. One is in ensuring food and mouth disease-free zones and in facilitating a process of full traceability from the moment the calf is born to the moment the steak, for example, is sold in the market. 
right? So that the consumer can see from where this piece of beef is coming from, you know? This full traceability is highly appreciated in markets, it's paid for, right? So you get an extra price for that. And it's something that the Chinese are requiring increasingly. So if Pakistan is to tap into the Chinese market for meat, it will need to invest in that area. And the last one that I will mention, the last sector is the typical traditional sector, textiles and apparel. Textiles and apparel in Pakistan is a stunted sector, if I may say. Why? Because it is restricted to a particular segment, that is the segment of natural fibers. Man-made fibers in Pakistan are difficult to, uh, to get, in part because there are trade restrictions to the imports of man-made fibers. But apparel using man-made fiber is the fastest growing segment of apparel. So by imposing trade restrictions on man-made fibers in Pakistan, you're basically stunting the, the sector. So in a way, the, the, sorry, just for the listener who may be a bit confused. So you're thinking about what are man-made fibers is like your athletic t-shirt sold by Nike versus a cotton t-shirt sold by H&M, right? Is that the difference here? Exactly, exactly. Sportswear makes a lot of use of man-made fibers. So if you think about that dry fit type of, type of shirt that you use when you run, right? That one uses synthetic polyester that is that is needed for many types of, 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 of gear, but in particular for sports gear. And it's something which Pakistanis are priced out because it is very difficult to import, difficult in the sense of expensive to import man-made fibers. So for a country that has a comparative advantage in textiles and apparel, let them produce all sorts of textiles and apparel, right? Mm. Because they will tap into larger markets, more dynamic markets. So, I mean, the rice example is super fascinating because, you know, as you all know, and listeners have been hearing on the television and reading about it every day, there's a wheat and sugar crisis. And I always remind people that market liberalization, one example of that is looking at wheat and sugar versus rice, where rice is not regulated. Rice is consumed by a lot of Pakistanis, um, yet it continues to be, as you described, competitive in the export market and Pakistani rice fetches does really well internationally. And so one argues that your point, right, in theoretically talking about the anti-export bias, there is an example in the rice sector where you allow the sector to grow and mushroom and there is a competitive advantage naturally and that shows over the years in terms of even in a high food inflation environment, rice inflation has actually been quite less compared to other products because there is an incentive for Pakistani farmers, Pakistani producers to be competitive outside, which is why they continue to make the right, right investments in this sector to grow it. And that shows in the domestic market as well. So I think that's a fascinating example of just the average person can experience this in the market themselves about why is rice not as expensive or doesn't have the same level of inflation despite everything is because it is export-oriented. Am I correct in sort of understanding it this way? Well, it is, it is because uh, there, there are a lot of investments being made in the sector because export opportunities imply that they need to make uh, a lot of investments. And one of the things that you see also is a lot of different varieties of, of rice, right? Which is not the case for other products that are uh, more protected. So you have, you have brown rice, you have the basmati, you have different lengths of grains, you have... A lot of, so you, when, when you go buy rice in, in Pakistan, you feel like in many cases, when you go in the United States to, to buy a particular product in which you have a lot of different varieties, right? For rice here, you have a lot of different varieties. So I think your comment is, is quite on point. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of sort of a policy perspective, right, that you, we've seen in the news now with COVID, exports orders got shifted to Pakistan. There are reports of exporters, particularly in the textile sector, working at near or full capacity. Uh, and there's this feel-good factor that is emerging um, since 2018 when the currency depreciated. Again, going back to that example, that it's like a grand opening sale when you do that. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen um, that, that sort of make you optimistic about Pakistan's export sector in the last two, three years? Because I think that the currency shift to a market exchange rate was a big thing. And I think that was something that should be applauded. But from your perspective, what are some other changes that you are beginning to see that, you know, give you hope that the sectors you've identified and others might actually um, grow in the coming months and years? Well, okay. So you mentioned the first one, right? The movement to a, to a market-based exchange rate, I think, is the, the number one element, right? You can't have exports growing with an overvalued exchange rate. You can't, right? No country has ever grown their export sector with an overvalued exchange rate. It doesn't mean you need to artificially keep it undervalued, right? But it is a necessary condition for it not to be overvalued. So that's the first thing. But apart from that, let me mention three things that I think are uh, good moves uh, that have happened in terms of, of policies. And I will mention these three things and I will also mention what I think should be done in addition, right, for each of these three things. So the first one is there is quite a large effort for tariff rationalization. So I mentioned before, import duties are really high, right? They're high comparatively and they are implicitly an export tax. So if they want to increase exports, they need to reduce the import duties. So the tariff rationalization efforts need to be applauded, I think, uh, but they need to be complemented. The focus now on the tariff rationalization is on intermediates and raw materials. And if you look at the last Finance Act, uh, most of the reductions came in those categories, intermediates and raw materials, so import duties falling. That's good but you also need to reduce import duties on the final goods. If you don't, what you're doing is just giving them effective protection. And what end, will end up happening is a situation in which exports will be discouraged because you're encouraging pro producing for the domestic economy. So going back to our bicycle example, you're reducing the tariff on the chain, on the wheel, on the spokes, but the final tariff on the bicycle, which is still $100 outside, is still 52%. Exactly. And so what happens is because the tariff on the, on, the, on the wheel and on the chain is lower, then the profits of the bicycle maker increase. Yeah. But the incentives for the bicycle maker to export are unchanged. Yeah. In fact, if anything, they get even more by selling domestically because their costs have fallen. So you need to complement. If you want to make in Pakistan strategy, as they, they frequently talk about, you need to complement that making Pakistan with a sold in the world strategy. And that, in, that will take, what will it take? It will take reducing tariffs on final goods at the same time as you're reducing them on intermediates and raw materials. So tariff rationalization should be applauded as long as it is also complemented with a reduction in tariffs in final goods. The, the second thing is free trade agreements, right? And moving to deeper trade agreements. And here, the renegotiation of the China-Pakistan Free Trade Agreement, the phase two of the uh, CPTA is a, is a good thing. If you look at 
the concessions, they got very good concessions matching the preferences that ASEAN countries uh, have. So this is something that also needs to be uploaded. We need more of this. I think Pakistani exporters need more of this. They need uh, progress on the, on the agreement with Turkey. They need progress on the agreement with Thailand, more. And then the third one is a little bit more, uh, you know, conceptual in nature, if I may say, that is, an incipient use of evidence to base policies. And this is something that, that I'm seeing uh, a little bit more. So Pakistan spends a lot of money, the Pakistan government, meaning the taxpayers of Pakistan, spend a lot of money in supporting firms in different ways. There are incentives, there are subsidies here and there. Some of them overlap. But we know very little about what impact these subsidies have. Some may you, have. You've hit a nerve for me, I, and I will interrupt here because I was having this debate just three or four days ago with a friend when the you know they started floating this idea of reducing the power sector tariff, electricity tariff on industrial users. And they were like, we're going to reduce it by this much to grow demand, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, is there a document or something that has been shared in terms of the overall impact on employment, GDP growth, industrial output, like, has somebody modeled this out to tell me that if the Pakistani taxpayer is paying, let's say, 50 billion rupees in additional subsidies on electricity, GDP will grow by 75 billion? Um, and I think that's what you're referring to is like, we'll do this, give you the subsidy. But when you ask, okay, what's the expected impact? Um, everyone just shrugs their shoulder. That, that, that's true. So that's true. It is, it is crucial to monitor and evaluate incentives that are given to firms because these incentives come out of taxpayers money and basically whatever you give to someone is a, you know an extra rupee you're giving to someone is an extra rupee you're not giving to say the poor right and you have a lot of poverty and extreme poverty uh, that that this that deserves attention right so this is a this is a very delicate issue uh, what i'm saying here is you see increasingly the, the perhaps a, a culture of using evidence to base certain decisions. And I'm going to give you one example. Uh, State Bank Pakistan runs a financing schemes for exporters. Two financing schemes are the largest ones, the export finance scheme that finances working capital and the long-term financing facility that financing, finances investments in plant uh, and, and in machinery and plant expansions. So, uh, the SBP last year asked for uh, an impact evaluation of these schemes. Uh, and they, they, they run an in-house impact evaluation and, and they asked for an independent impact evaluation. We worked with researchers from uh, University City of London on this impact evaluation. And one of the things that we find is that the schemes actually do have a positive impact on exports. But the other thing that we find is that these this schemes were even by design, focusing on specific sectors that were already well established in Pakistan. So one of the recommendations there, there were several recommendations, but one of the recommendations was open up these schemes to all sectors and to all firms in the, in the economy that, that want to export. And this is something that was taken up by, uh, by State Bank Pakistan. And this is, a very, this is very good news, right? It's very good news that they are making decisions based on a analysis of data and on, on analysis of impact of, of interventions. But much more of this is needed. 
right? So much more of this is needed so that uh, all of these uh, support schemes are, uh, are, are, are so, so that we know a little bit more what is happening with support schemes. Do they work, do they not, then phase out the ones that don't, then boost the ones that do. Uh, so these are the three things that I would say uh, are promising, again, tariff rationalization with certain tweaks, negotiation of agreements, what happened with China-Pakistan was a good thing, uh, and incipient use of evidence to guide policymaking. I would say those are promising developments. So I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I think um, I've learned a lot from your expertise and the journey through why productivity matters to what is being done today. And I think it's reassuring to hear from you that there are areas where things are happening and more needs to happen, but at least things are trending in the right direction. Um, before I let you go, I'll ask my guests about uh, two to three books. It can be on exports and trade. It can be on any other topic, but it's something that whenever I forget to ask my guests about these questions, people comment and say, well, why didn't you ask it? So uh, what are two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read to you know, enjoy or understand better about trade and exports, whatever topic um, that you think are, is fascinating? I would say the the you know the, the, the book that I enjoy the, the most in the last couple of years was by Richard Baldwin on the Great Convergence that basically goes about how this this issue of global value chains came about right so it goes from the history of trade from the Industrial Revolution times uh, you know with the first unbundling and then the second unbundling with global value chains and then what is happening next so it describes the the way in which global value chains operate and who gains and who loses and what needs to be done to be able to take advantage uh, of this in a very, very nice uh, way. It is, a, it is very accessible reading uh, for, for any reader. You don't need to be an economist to, to enjoy. The Great Convergence by, by Richard Bowen. The follow-up to The Great Convergence is also a great book that is called The Globotics Upheaval, also by Richard Bowen, that, that goes into how the, the automation process uh, will evolve in the years to come, mm. and how digital trade will change a distribution of income in a dramatic way uh, globally. And I think this is this is uh, this book is something that COVID made even more fascinating to read. Right, the whole remote work that emerged with COVID is something that 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 uh, strengthened the, the value of that of that book. And then, if if you let me just finish with with one that is. For those that are not so fascinated by globalization and, and are worried by, you know, they may think, okay, perhaps it went too far. A nice account of uh, some paradoxes that, that brings that globalization brings is, is that was done by Danny Roderick a few years back in the globalization paradox. I think the globalization paradox is also a great book uh, that I would recommend your 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 audience to to have a look at. Well, those are those are great recommendations, and I think Roderick's work is a must-read for anyone interested in this topic. So, uh, Dr. Gonzalo, thank you so much for taking out the time. This has been a fascinating conversation, and appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much.